Hello, friend. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. This week, we are joined by Mitchell Cohen, a man who was involved with and witnessed firsthand the rise of Clive Davis's Arista Records in the 70s, the Barry Manilow era through to the Whitney Houston era of the 80s and beyond. Uh, one of the things I most enjoyed about reading this book and talking to Mitchell was actually learning about all the other Arista acts that are lost to the mist of time who did not achieve the same commercial heights as the aforementioned. And I decided to do a show about those. Over on my Patreon every month, I do a show called I Heard These Guys Are Good. And uh, when you're done listening to this, maybe go check that companion pod out as well. This month on I Heard These Guys Are Good, the rest of the 70s and 80s Arista roster. You might just find your, well, you're not going to find your new favorite band of all time, but you might hear some good stuff. Come find us. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape. From an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a longtime employee at Clive Davis's Arista Records, who has written a history of that label's founding and indeed golden era in a book published by the venerable Trouser Press entitled Looking for the Magic, New York City, the 70s, and the Rise of Arista. Hello and welcome, Mitchell Cohen. Well, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you here. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a while. Me too. And I, I have... Um, Enjoyed. I love that your publicist was kind enough to provide uh, Spotify playlists to yeah. tie yep. into the book because it's it's so tantalizing reading about all of these acts. In many ways, for me, it was more exciting reading about the acts that are not household names, the the also rans, and to have that easy availability in this day and age to actually go and hear the music you're talking about was uh, was continues to be a lot of fun for me. We'll get to that in a bit. First things first. You are sort of invisible in your own in your own book until until the very end. Why did you choose yeah. to go about it that way? And more importantly, who are you and what were you doing at Arista throughout uh, the seventies and eighties? That, that's a good question. The invisibility part was was completely intentional. I, I didn't want it to be like a memoir of my life in the record business. Uh, you know, how I got my start and being a rock writer and all that stuff. I mean, it, that seemed to me to be an entirely different story than the story I wanted to tell. Um, the way this book began, um, BMG Books was doing a series uh, of books on independent record labels. Uh, it was called the RPM series. And they put out books on Sub Pop and Specialty and Excello, and, you know, and um, Cold Chillin', I believe. I think Ben did that one. And uh, and I was assigned, you know, at my request to do one on Arista. So it, it was meant to just cover the independent years of, Ar of Arista Records from when Clive Davis took over from Larry Utah, took over Bell, Amy Mala, and then transitioned it into Arista. 
then, uh, so I delivered the book in February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. So then the, pan the pandemic put it on hold for a year. And then uh, when that year was up, BMG Publishing, you know, had a change at, at the top and the whole uh, RPM series was scratched. So I was, I was just looking for a home for this. And uh, Ira and I have crossed paths many times over the years. And I knew he was putting out his own stuff on, you know, under the Trouser Press imprint. And I asked if he'd be, you know, game for like working with uh, out, an outside guy. And uh, I sent him a copy of the book and we decided to do it together. So, so w w in terms of your actual role, though, at, at Arista in the 70s and 80s, it seemed like you were not exactly the person who worked from the mailroom up. But you you did manage to to move Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was I was offered a job uh, in the summer of 77 as a publicity copywriter. I was writing press releases and bios and photo captions. And yeah, kind of might as well have been, have been the mail room. I was making like $12,000 a year when I started. They were paying me as little as they could get away with. Um, and then I transitioned and, you know, started working in creative services, started to do you know, the advertising end of things. We uh, wrote and produced the spots for radio commercial, you know, the radio commercials and did like the print ads, uh, you know, consumer and, and, and industry ads. And then finally, um, around the mid 80s, uh, I asked for a shot at doing A&R and, um, and through, you know, <laughs> a series of events, that's, that, that's, where, that's where I ended up. And you have some feathers in your cap in that regard. You were involved to some extent or another in signing the church. Yeah, I did. I brought the church to Arista. Uh, I brought the the, um, the Jeff Healy band to to, to Arista, and we had some success. And uh, yeah, a few other things: Chris McKay and Curtis Steigers, and uh, I did a comeback album with Dion. Mucci called yeah. uh, Yo, Yo Frankie because I, I, I had been a huge, huge fan of Dion growing up in the Bronx. And, you know, he was he was like my first like rock hero. And so the opportunity to get to actually make a record with him was like, you know, a dream come true. So, yeah, it was, um, you know, it was, but a, a lot my A&R years don't coincide with the years that are covered by this book. Uh, the book really runs from when, uh, it, well, it precede, precedes the Arista years with a, with, with a mini history of Bell, Amy, and Mala, you know, how, you know what, what they were up to in the 60s and early 70s. And then how Clive built it and, and, and through the first decade of being an independently distributed record label and it ends around the time that the first Whitney Houston album comes out that's right which yeah. which, which which begins a whole other era uh that you know I was I was you know a part of but you know is, is not you know it's not under the umbrella of what I was doing here as you said the book begins with this precursor label which I'll admit I was not familiar with Bell Records I was listening through this um this 
playlist of some of the highlights of their releases and the things that they released that had been, you know, previously released by labels overseas. To me, that label, it doesn't sound like Arista to me. It sounds like I judge it to be, correct me if I'm wrong, a mix of sort of bubble gum. There's some novelty in there. And to me, things that may have ended up on a Quentin Tarantino soundtrack in his, in there, his... Was of, there was some of that. Um, Larry Utah, who ran Bell, had a very had a, had a unique A and R philosophy, which in, in sense of he didn't really have one. He didn't have an in house A and R department as such, and he would license recordings from different you know, production entities from. Uh, you know, producers who were doing things in Memphis and New Orleans. And uh, so he he made a deal with Alan Toussaint and Marshall Seahorn in in, um, in New Orleans. He made a deal with the guys in Memphis and picked up uh, the box tops. And so it, it, it was very much a clearinghouse. You know, and he went over to England a lot and picked up um, acts from there, you know, with Mickey Most. And he picked up, um, you know, The Sweet and Susan Quattro. It was a very um, eclectic, but uh, not uh, not a particularly A and R focused philosophy because it was uh, it was all outsourced. Um, by the time um, Bell was about to transition, um, it was really known as a singles label. It was known as the label that had Tony Orlando and Dawn, that had Fifth Dimension and the Partridge Family, and uh, you know, things like that. You know, the nights went out, the night, uh, the lights went out in Georgia by Vicki Lawrence and um, Seasons in the Sun by, you know, Terry Jacks. So when, when Clive Davis was uh, left, left CBS um, and took a year off to write his book, there was a lot of speculation in the industry where he would end up, like what he would be doing next. And I don't think anybody would have counted on him taking like the foundation the skeleton of bell amy mala uh, and and turning it into into what what ours what ours that became you make an interesting observation that i've not i don't think i've heard before in regard to the the bubblegum pop the glam stuff front that bell put out in the 70s a lot of that stuff now, I was really into the glam metal stuff that came later, so I did my homework mm. subsequently on the Sweet and Bay City Rollers, who were all big influences on that stuff. So as you point out, those bands were very successful in the UK. Most of them, in, in whole or in part, failed to hit in the US. The bands that succeeded them, sort of spiritually, the very visual, uh, shiny, happy bands mm. th uh, from England... They found a lot of success on MTV, the Flock of Seagulls, the Haircut 100s, what have you. The difference, Haircut 100, yeah, Kevin yeah. 17, yeah. Right, yeah. so as you point out, the difference between those is England had Top of the Pops, and America yeah. didn't have a counterpart by the time the new wave bands came along. America had MTV. That might be the reason why the Bay City Rulers never became, I mean, they were never going to be the next Beatles, but anywhere close to it. No, I no, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. We... You know, in, in in the in the early '70s, there was you know there was not that much exposure for those bands here. I mean, and certainly not for one-offs or, or or more novelty or things like like Al, Alvin Stardust and Mud and uh, you know Shawadi Wadi and all the stuff that was coming out on Bell in the UK. But in in the mid '80s, um, MTV started, and MTV 
as, as it's been well documented, really was reliant on a lot of videos from England because American record companies were not used to making promotional videos, whereas, whereas England was. So a lot of their programming was, you know, you know, was, was you, you can generate, which is why not only the, the ones that were on, on Arista, but I mean, Duran Duran and, and, uh, you know, Dexy's Midnight Runners and Human League. And, you know, it really was, you know, like people called it like, you know, the second British invasion. Um, and Arista was very, very keen on capitalizing on that, not just through its own, its own Arista UK, but picking up things, you know, from, you know, Mark, you know, the members and Pete Shelley and, and, and um, uh, a lot, of, a lot of acts like that, and in a lot of ways, this book revolves around Clive Davis, who's always bound to be the central figure in this book. I wonder, somebody, I'm assuming you interacted with him closely or from a short distance, a lot for a long period of a time. Very long, yeah. <laughs> right, right. In, in what way period. is he is the Clive Davis that you have known different from the Clive Davis of the popular imagination? I get from the book that he liked to be very, very cold. Ah, in terms of temperature, not, yes. you know, he was a he's a warm guy, but in terms of the temperature of the meeting rooms, yes, uh, you, know, you know, we knew when he was like having like, a long product presentation at one of our conventions that it, it would be good to wear a sweater and maybe bring a blanket. <laughs> but but beyond that, look, yeah, a, a record label is always characterized by its hits, and you know. With people look at the, at the track record of, of Arista and they see you know Barry Manilow and Air Supply and Kenny G and uh, Dionne Warwick and, and you know even like up, up, up to and including Aretha, you know it, it gives a very it, it, I mean it's a snapshot but it but but it's an incomplete uh, picture of what was going on there because from the very beginning he wanted the label to encompass everything he wanted it to encompass rock and 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 jazz especially and certainly r&b and uh and new wave and he signed lou reed and patty smith and dwight twilly and uh graham parker and the rumor and you know and it's like when i when i was offered the job and you know the 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 underling <laughs> copywriter job in 77 it just seemed like the coolest place to be. I mean, you know, Horses was what was a major, major album for me. I was always had been a huge fan of the Kinks uh, and, and, and of Lou Reed. And um, and he was signing like R&B artists that I love, like uh, uh, Martha Reeves and, and Eddie Kendricks and uh, General Johnson from the chairman of the board. And um put out a monty python albums and saturday night live albums and uh, you know just like it just seemed like you know like energetic and, and eclectic and fun place to be uh, and um and and i you know and it was i mean but you know because you know whatever whatever the things that rose to the top commercially there were always things that we were excited about you know, in the press department or in the advertising department or later on in A&R that we put as much of our energy and heart into as the things that sold millions of records and, and 
kept us in business. Um, so I think to an extent, what I mean, first of all, Clive has written his own his own book, I, you know, and that tells his own story from his own perspective. What I wanted to do was talk about some of those artists like Willie Nile and David Foreman and, and, and Quasar and, and, and Linda Lewis and, um, you know, the ones that we all, you know, loved, you know, at, at, at the label and had high hopes for and didn't connect for whatever reason, you know, I mean, you know, that's it's the nature of the business. You know, the nature of the business is, you know, you can, I mean, we loved Graham Parker in the rumor. I mean, there's no one on the label that didn't think that he would be our, I don't know, let's say Elvis Costello or Bruce Springsteen or, uh, you know, you know, he was, it was one of the best live bands I'd ever seen. Um, just plain and simple. Uh, you know, I wanted to tell the story, first of all, from the perspective of the people that worked on the records, you know, from the marketing people, the you know, the promotion people, you know, the A&R people uh, who signed those acts, you know, just because, you know, I, I, I call it like, you know, I call the book like a remix or like a flip side. It's, uh, it's, everyone knows, you know, you have the stories of the hit records because they've been told over and over again and um so i wanted to give give a sense of what else what else was going on there well as i said that that to me was maybe the most fascinating part of the the book the the development or sad, sadly the sometimes the lack thereof the bands that Arist uh, arista was not able to break in your experience, and I know the answer to this question is all of the above, but if I can just ask you to parse it <laughs> a little bit more than that, when signings did not pan out, did you most often attribute that to these? this band was never all that great in the first place, or this band did not capture what they had adequately in the studio, or we took the wrong tack for promoting it, or this would have been big 18 months ago, but mm -hmm. now the tides have turned. What do you, what do you, what yeah, stands out I, to you the most of those? Yeah, as you say, it's, it, it, it's almost always a combination, a combination of those things. It, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's hard, it's always hard to pinpoint because every case was different. In the case of, let's say, uh, um, David Foreman or Willie Nile. Well, can we I talk? Mean, can we talk about Willie Nile a little bit? Because as I say, I've sampled the music, and that's the one that stood out to me. Uh, for the most part, maybe it's because once a song, you know, was a hit when you were a kid, it gets grandfathered into that. It was always destined to be a hit thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of these I listen to, and I can hear. I feel like why they didn't connect with an audience. Willie Nile is the one you mentioned in the book that I've listened to a bit, where I say, "Wow, no, this really was. Yeah. A th I really could have seen this being a thing." So talk about his case a little bit, Willie. Yeah, yeah, I'm. I, Met him when when he was when he was first signed, and you know we, we you know he came up to the office and we became friendly. And I wrote his original like press releases and bios and stuff, and saw him live many times. And he had that kind of spark. I mean, he had you know the energy that you look for. You know, I saw him at like Kenny's Castaways in the bottom line, and there was just something about him that seemed like fresh and familiar. It was a little bit new wave, but a little bit rockabilly you know obviously he drew on like you know you know like early rock and roll but with a modern sensibility he had a great gift of songwriting um and that, 
there was so there was so much excitement about him. You know, within weeks, you know, he was he was he was given offers to open in arenas for the Who. Um, and um, what happened? You know, if if it fell between the cracks of pop radio and rock radio, if it, uh, yeah, if critical acclaim sometimes occurs in a vacuum and doesn't translate to, you know, the mainstream. Um, I mean, there's hardly ever one explanation because the marketing department, the advertising department, the publicity department, you know, we all we all loved him. I still do. I mean, I bump into Willie all the all the time, and um, it, you know, he's you know he's one of my favorite people in New York. Um, and you always feel like you know it's these things are like look the fact that he's still doing it, the fact that he's still like playing. I could go across town and see him next week at City Winery is great because it, it just proves that there was something there that's. That's got longevity. That's got integrity. That you know. That's got you know. He's he's great at what he does, and 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 always has been. When you when you do that as an A and R person, when you sign someone like a guy that's an A and R person, which I didn't. I mean, I was not an A and R yet, but I have signed like acts. You know, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to put them under the spotlight. But and you feel, but you feel a responsibility for it. You know, you feel like. As an A&R person, you're saying, trust me, you know, I get it. I'm going to help you make a record that you're proud to have your name on. And I'm going to make sure that the company knows who you are and that the company lets the outside world know who you are. I can't guarantee that you're going to sell a million records, but I can guarantee that you're going to have your shot. And, you know, and you make that pledge to them. And when it doesn't work out, you know, you feel like you shoulder some of the blame. But then you also think like that's like the vagaries of, of the business. It's, you know, I mean, how, you know, how many bands that we loved from the 60s, you know, you know, ended up being like underground bands and or, you know, the 13th floor elevators or you know, the MC5 even, you know, and now the MC5 are nominated for the Rock and Hall of Fame again. So, you know, ultimately hits hits come and go. Uh but the fact that Willie Nile is still playing to people that want to see him play is, is, you know, is a testament to how good he is and how right we were, except that it didn't work on, on the level that we wanted it to work. There's an element to life in a successful record label that you touch on in this book that I guess had never even really occurred to me, although it's very obvious when we think about wanting to have been in in your shoes in, in an era like this, in a place like this, we think about being rubbing shoulders with music stars or going yeah. to parties or going to concerts. But the simple fact of running a record label means you need to have meetings where you play the music is the the artist has been signed they've the song the material's yeah. been selected it's been developed it's been produced it's been mixed it's been mastered here's the single we got to go sell this thing so you have singles meetings where you say yeah. here's here's i just never really thought about that you must have memories of hearing singles albums for the first time in meetings oh, like that with clive sure. Any, does anything particularly come to mind yeah, I mean, I, I always rem- I remember the first time I heard All Around the World by Lisa Stansfield. 
you know, mm. it, it, it was in a room that, you know, like a, a mixture of, you know, um, promotion people, marketing people and everything else. And it just like some records just like, it just like come out of the speakers and you, and, and there's like a feeling of like inevitability about it. There's just, there's just something like, Oh my God, this, this record has everything. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, the first, well, I didn't, the first time I heard because the night by, by the Patty Smith group was not, was not the record. It was yeah, at a Patty Smith show. She had never played it before. It was at uh, you know the East Village, uh, you know, and the, the album wasn't done yet. The Easter album, and she introduced this new song, and Springsteen came out and played it with her. And there were a few of us there. It was over the holidays. It was like in that you know between Christmas and New Year's time. So a lot of people were not in the office, but we were all, a bunch of us were fans of Patty's. So we went to her show and. When we got back in January, we were just like, you're not going to believe this. First of all, Patty is back and she's amazing. But also she has this song that is just, it's like everything you hope for. It's the song that takes it to the next level. And uh, that, that's a moment in a, in a concert that I won't forget because, you know, when you you hear because the night for the first time Springsteen hadn't played it. It was like an outtake from the album that he was working on. And her album had not been played for anybody at Arista yet. But you heard it and you go like, oh my God, again, you know, the performance, the hook, you know, you know, the tape. I mean, I'm like, hell, we have something here. And when you hear that, it was after Arista, I went, didn't did A&R at Columbia. And it was the same sort of feeling when I was in a single meetings at Columbia and I heard uh, Beyonce's uh, Crazy in Love. I mean, it's like just one of those things where you just look around and you look at the person next to you and you go like, this record is going to take over the world in, in a few weeks. It's going to be everywhere. And there's, there's no feeling quite that exciting you know is you know as you just as a record industry person to know like oh everyone's gonna know this what made everything worthwhile you say in the book that you feel that the song because the night if you had to pick a song that encapsulates what arista was and wanted to be that would be the song that you would choose why do you say that because because it combined um uh, it combined the integrity and artistry of someone like patty who wrote her own material and carved her, 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 her own her, her own space but it was also undeniably commercial and and, and and it's sort of like when when you can get both of those things when you can when you can get and you know, when, when when there's an artist like Patty with a song like "Because Night," uh, which she she still plays and is proud of to this day, and Lenny Kay says, "Like, look, we love that. We still love that song. We'll play. We'll play it every night." And uh, and then you know the fact that that, that began as, as as the Springsteen thing was 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 certainly a bonus, but it, but it's Patty's. You know, it just you know it, it, you know she you know she put her mark on it. And it was kind of like a way of her having like an outside song without it being an outside song. It wasn't like something that Clive Davis gave her. It was something that 
happened organically because Jimmy Iovine brought it from Springsteen's studio over to Patty's studio. And yeah, there's there's just something I was going to call the, the book because the night at one at one point, just because it, it, to me it like represented like you know the the cumulative effect of like everything that had been building up with Patty in her career and that moment and her comeback and having a, a commercial breakthrough with an artist that was always like, is she gonna, is, is this gonna work? Is this gonna work beyond? Uh, the following that she got from from horses um yeah it's just you know it's one of those records that if yeah if i wanted to play and i that it's that's one of them and and another one would be like how will i know by whitney you know sort of like oh this this you know okay, well let me let me the, ask you about the, that. the 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 other side of Arista. right so let me ask I, you about the the other side of Arista. You, you we would all love to in our work be uh critical darlings and be fabulously wealthy uh, most of us have neither of those things, but many often people who have one of those things do it at the expense of the other. So it's very obvious that Clive Davis was interested in putting out quality product. He didn't need to focus on jazz quite so much if he was just all about, you know, making squeezing every last dollar out of uh, a record label. But he also wanted to have big hits. He cared very deeply and needed to care because he was running an upstart business. And about he had seen at Columbia that with jazz, mm -hmm. with Miles Davis and the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Herbie Hancock and Weather Report, that jazz could matter, you know, in, in, in a commercial sense. So when he gave um, his jazz people free reign to do it, he was doing it, first of all, because he thought the music demerited it, uh, that it, you know, deserved exposure. But, you know, he was always mindful that as part of the overall um philosophy of a record label he wanted it to be as broad as as it was when he was at, at columbia so, but ultimately if you think do you think if he had to choose between um the the credibility or the sales the art or the hits patty smith or whitney houston which one do you think more got oh. him out of got him out of bed in the morning well he got out of bed in the morning in a different way for Whitney because Patty was 95% left to her own devices, you know, in terms right. of, you know, writing, producing the artwork, like everything, you know, he, he gave her as, as he should have uh, complete control over, over her creative destiny. But, but what got him to the office in the morning to do his job was we need songs for Whitney. We need to find the right song and match it with the right producer. That first Whitney Houston album, I call yeah, I call in the book like an example of extreme A and R. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that anybody, even artists like Michael Jackson had Quincy and Donna Summer had Marauder, and there was always like one vision producer artist. This is how blockbusters are made. Prince had Prince. I mean, <laughs> yes. anybody else. But with the first Whitney album, it's like, okay, let's have Michael Masser do a few of these songs. Let's do have Narda Walden do this other song. Let's have these songs done by Kashif, you know, for like the urban market. It, it was not the kind of uh, 
blockbuster A&R that had ever been done be before. I mean, you know, this multi-producer, songs from all different kinds of places. Um, as I said, like, you know, the template for big, big albums, you know, Madonna and Nile or, you know. So, yeah, I don't think, I mean, you know, Clive certainly gets a share of accolades and, 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 and they're, and they're well-deserved. But that, to a large extent, I think was what was a creation of his that you know that that brand of you know let's call it you know like ex extreme A and R and that's and that's what Columbia emulated with like uh, Mariah sure. and what what Epic uh, emulated with Celine Dion and that became the new template that became the way you know superstar diva albums were 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 made you know i was looking back i'm a massive fan of 80s music and 80s pop music in particular I, I in retrospect i was i am disappointed by the whitney houston material i don't think there's any debating she was the most talented vocal pop vocalist of the 1980s and i didn't get it so much at the time i was a kid but the stuff was very safe very middle of the road very saccharine there's an alternate universe. I don't know that there was a place in the 1980s for a new Aretha Franklin, but the talent was mm. there for a new Aretha Franklin, and that's not the body of work that Whitney Houston yeah, left behind. I, but, I, but you make I, the point I, in the I book. You, you make the point in the book, whereas I always assumed that was something. Uh, you know, Clive Davis putting blinders on Whitney. You don't. You did not experience it that way at all. I don't see it that way at all. I mean, when we first saw Whitney. She was playing like, you know, she was had like a step out moment in her mom's set, you know, at Sweetwaters or at 7th Avenue South or at the bottom line. And she would do, you know, the greatest love of all. She would do Home from, you know, The, the Wiz. She would do uh, I'm Changing from Dream Girls. I mean, she that, that that's the stuff she walked in the door with. I mean, and that's. What she learned from you know from from her mom you know that that sort of like you know be you know you know project on the on the big ballads and everything and yeah i mean there was an extent where it's like i mean look that's part of her i mean but i think a lot of what people criticize about her and blame arista and and, and by extension clive for is is that we tried to like make her pop she was pop i mean she was like she was a pop singer i mean she was singing you know, she would she was uh, singing the book and like she wasn't um, like she wasn't a new orleans singer she wasn't like irma thomas like singing in the french quarter she was singing in nightclubs with her mom and you know and her and like her mom groomed her to an extent to be and i to use that word now but it's so fraught but uh to be you know the you know the model diva if, if that if that means anything and if anything i think the mandate from an a standpoint was to muss her up a little bit make her more fun make her sexier you know uh, the songs with kashif and and how will i know i think we're, we're an attempt to bring her out of that zone rather than, I mean, the Michael Masser stuff, you know, is, is it is what it is. And I'm not particularly a fan of it 
either. I mean, it's not it's not where I would go with an artist, but you can't deny that songs like "Didn't We Always Have It All" and you know, "All at Once" and all that stuff was was, was tremendously potent for her. Um, "Saving All My Love for You" is just a great pop song, you know, Jerry Gossip song, you know. But you know, so um, yeah, I I, I I I tend to get defensive about. Arista's role in the Whitney story because, you know, I saw her, you know, before the album was, was made, you know, and I, you know, she used to come out and hang out in the publicity department. And, and I think, you know, she always had like the sense of reserve and the sense of, you know, what am I going to be? And uh, yeah, and I, and I know that people think that she could have been Aretha and I, I, I wouldn't deny that, but what but was there like a Memphis to send her down to or no. a Muscle Shoals to send her down to to work with Jerry Wexler, to to work with Rick Hall? I mean, I don't know that that existed any anymore. I mean, I guess you could have put her with Nile Rogers or something or you made it more Donna Summery or something. But look, there's no denying that um, she was like the great, vocalist of of, of 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 her generation and you know what whatever issue people have with oh it's too schmaltzy yeah i wouldn't argue against that but it worked and and and, and it was always a part of her which i think is the most important thing to, to note is not it is it's not a vision of her uh, that was imposed on her it was it was a vision that she and sissy and that had you know from 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 the beginning it's hard to read a, a book about a record label in the 70s and 80s and not read it partially through the prism of the notorious book hitmen about you know uh, payola yeah. and and all of that now i understand you were not doing independent promotion you don't yeah. doesn't seem like you were no, never. yeah you weren't dealing directly with um radio stations but the closest whiff of that sort of thing that I got from your book was somebody who agreed to get a mohawk in exchange for spins for Haircut 100. Oh, yeah. My phone is just a character. And look, I, I, I always admired promo people because, my God, they were fearless. And they had to be. They were going back to the same well week after week, pounding them for airplay. And look, and yeah, you could characterize that as... Yeah, we you know we're going to take a bunch of radio programmers out for steak and, and and lobster and champagne. Sure, I mean, I'm, you know that certainly went on. You know, the Mohawk thing was like it was funny because it was like you know how you know how do I get Haircut One Hundred on the radio if I get myself a Mohawk? Will you put it on? And 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 it worked. I, yeah, again, it's true, but I, I don't see that as I mean, no, 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 as as as, as as, as challenges for airplay go, I think that was kind of benign. Um, but yeah, we were always aware of like you know the indie the, the indie promotion situation. Uh, but it, it's not it's nothing that affected us. I mean, mean meaning you know the, the people in the other departments. It was just you know uh, it was understood that there were you know that we would hire indies, but their activities were certainly not known to us specifically. There was a lot of, there was a lot more money flowing around the record selling industry in those days than there is nowadays. You, you certainly saw a fair bit of 
opulence. The parties seem to oh yeah attest to that. The having uh, company retreats at the Hotel Del Coronado or on on a boat. It sounds like on a yacht. We do, yeah. we took a yacht around the Caribbean two years <laughs> in a in, in a row. Like a Duran Duran music video was your corporate retreat. It was it was you know we had we had the run of the, of the of the of the of the, of the yachts and it was just us and. We were ordering, you know, champagne in the hot tub at 3 a.m. And, and yeah, it was, you know, it's opulent even by the standards of, 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 the, of the 80s record business. But by that time, we were, you know, we were sw- literally swimming <laughs> in, in Whitney Houston and Kenny G money and Aretha money. And we were having hits with like Expose and Taylor Dane. And yeah, it was just one of those things that we were having some rock hits as well. You know, it's, it was, yeah, it, it was, it was a very, it was a very, very heady time. And um, I'm sure if you had on someone that worked for, you know, Electra or Island or, or not another or Atlantic, you know, they would have similar stories, I'm sure, was, was not unique to us. It was just a boom time. You know, I mean, MTV and the onset of uh, compact discs, you know, changed the whole financial uh, picture. For the, the, the industry in the early 80s was really dismal. There was like a, there was like a real slump, and it was reported on a lot by, by mainstream media, by you know la times new york times you know billboard and everything else it was 80 81 82 it's not you know it was certainly not boom time but combination of like blockbuster albums and compact disc sales and mtv exposure you know it all changed that and by the time whitney's album came out in the mid 80s um everything combined you know and um yeah it, it, it was explosive not just for us but if you survived um the the late 70s early 80s drought and and we're still hanging on yeah there was you know there, there was a lot of money to be made and a lot of fun to be had well i've heard the point made that you can't underestimate the how much those sales of CDs, particularly catalog sales, really buoyed those numbers because you had, you know, say on on the hard rock side of things, there's all a bunch of bands that sound like Led Zeppelin that are going platinum. But also yeah. the older music listeners are rebuying all of the Led Zeppelin yeah. albums because now they're on compact disc and they oh, and, yeah, and Jimmy yeah, Page yeah. remastered them all. Look, the first time, you know, the blockbuster, you know, superstars, you know, rolled out on CD, it was like you sold that album for the second or third time that they'd already, already bought the cassette. Uh, you sold it to the third time to the same listener. But at the same time, there were albums like uh, like Purple Rain and Born in the USA and Thriller and Like a Virgin. And it's like that was selling unprecedented numbers. And there were more of them than ever. I mean, there were more albums selling well over 5 million copies and to, you know, 5 to 10 million copies it was it, it, it was like an earn, unheard of boom and um it was due to all the all those factors obviously first of all you know michael jackson and bruce springsteen and patty and, and uh and and, and yeah. 
And any number Bruce, of people, sure. Bruce, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, the list goes yeah. on and on and on. We've forgotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody even talks about like Huey Lewis, and he was selling. Oh 10 my god, Huey Lewis, yeah. yeah, exactly. Huey Lewis would sell like five million, <laughs> yeah, right? You know, on, on, on sports, yeah. I mean, if you could have like three or four hit singles on an album, my god, the Eagles. I mean, the Eagles catalog. I mean, it's yeah, it it it, it, it was ridiculous. And Arista though didn't have a lot of catalog. I mean, it wasn't. You know, I mean, we didn't, we didn't have any uh, heritage classic. Oh, that's right. Act. Sure, sure, right. You know, we, you know, you know, Clive built this thing basically from from Bell's scraps. I mean, it's had you know, Barry Manilow, Melissa Manchester, and the Bay City Rollers had been on Bell, but everything else wasn't. So there wasn't any back catalog to exploit on on on, on CD for us. Um, so it was more for us about generating hits. I mean, that that, that was just, you know, it's just how it was. I mean, we needed to sell three, four million air supply albums because we weren't selling Eagles albums or Led Zeppelin albums or, you know, Neyman, Rolling Stones, and, you know, Bob Dylan. You know, it's like we didn't have that. We didn't yeah. have, you know, we, 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 we didn't have anything in the vaults. That, that was, I mean, we had the Bell stuff, but. That was not gonna, that was not going to move anything, you know. That, that was not going to move move the needle much. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a terrific point. Thank you for for pointing that out. It, moving back a little bit to the the late seventies, more the founding days of the label, as as you describe it. Well, throughout the the book, the label really was inextricable from the city where it was headquartered, from oh, yeah. from New York City. And the point has been made that at a certain moment in New York in the nineteen seventies. Downtown, you have maybe not the birth of punk, but a very big part of it. Uptown, you have the birth of hip hop, which I don't think would have been on your radar to any great extent. Not at, yet. At I mean, that not moment in time. The period that I'm writing about. I mean, we had a couple of hip hop acts that came in through um, Clive Calder and the Jive Records. We had we had Houdini which, on Jive, which was, I think, the first platinum hip hop album. I mean, if I'm not mistaken. I'm mistaken uh but no we were not deeply involved in it at, at that point or even we people we sort of tiptoeing into it but in terms of everything else in terms of funk and jazz and cabaret you know that the whole the whole cabaret scene you know that manlo and melissa came out of you know reno sweeney that clubs clubs like reno sweeney and um and you know the you know we we didn't have like a blockbuster dance act like Donna Summer, but we had, you know, we had hits. That's for, that's for sure. But it felt like New York. I mean, it's, it felt like, you know, you're in the center of Manhattan geographically, temperamentally. And, you know, from Patti Smith and, you know, and, and uh, over in Jersey and, and, and the CBs and, uh, Manlow's from Brooklyn, Lou Reed is from Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, just, you know, it's like I made the comparison in the book of like, people don't think that Lou Reed and Barry Manlow have an awful lot in common, but, you know, they're born a year apart in Brooklyn, J Jewish guys, both came from what, like their kind of underground, you know, whether it's the Continental Baths or, 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 or St. Mark's Place. I mean, it's like they began in a in a climate in a culture that was not mainstream whatever you think of manilow it was not like a sure bet 
to be like a massive pop star. I mean, he came out of that cabaret scene. Cabaret didn't break a lot of recording artists. I mean, there had been Bette Midler, but that's that's basically it. Well, you make a a, a terrific point to to further the analogy between the two, that whether it's um, Andy Warhol's Factory or... The, the Continental Bathhouse. It is a closed society. It is a, yeah. it is a cognoscenti. It is a, you're either in the, in the cool crowd or you're on the outside looking in. So the, the analogy holds way more water than it would on its face. Uh, yeah. I, when, I, when I started like researching this and I'm like, look, and there's a, there's a lot of misfit, <laughs> misfit uh, sensibility going on at, at Arista and a lot of, you know, the Kings made an album called Misfits, you know, for, for us. And, um, and I, you know, the, and there was a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of like, you know, supporting things, you know, that might, I mean, not everyone would have put their money on, on, on the, on the Kings at, at that moment in time, but, you know, if you if you're not going to bet on Ray Davies as a songwriter, who are you going to bet on? I mean, you know, he's going to come up with something great. Um, the you know, the the other story that that I frame in, in, in terms of Clive is that when Clive was let go from CBS and needed to stage a comeback story, you know, that was very much Arista was like his redemption story. Arista was his "I can do it again" story. And I think when he saw artists like the Kinks or Dionne Warwick or Aretha Franklin or, or the Grateful Dead who were floundering around and not really getting the support that their artistry, you know, warranted, I think he saw in that or, or Lou Reed like a parallel sort of thing. It's like I'm going to prove that we can do it again. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to revitalize that you know this you know the this artist, the way he, he, he revitalized his own career as a record executive. And, and I think, I, I think that's a theme that goes through this, you know, when it's sort of like, I'm not going to give up on Dionne Warwick, you know, this, there's still hits in her. And he was right. The same with Aretha, same with the Kings. Oh, I, I, I love the, I, I didn't actually know where the line in the sand was in her career, but as uh, somebody got into Burt Bacharach and then got into Dionne Warwick, it, then I, right. well, what else does, does she have? And, you know, you're not going to confuse Heartbreaker with Do You Know the Way to San Jose, Absolutely which, not. which, which I, is a I, testament I, 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 to what they did because I love Heartbreaker and it's a complete, oh, no, she, no. she's the she same singer, but records. it's a different stratosphere. Absolutely. I, I was at Clive's uh, 90th birthday party a couple of weeks ago and Dionne Warwick was there and she got on stage and she said that they met on the set of some TV show and that they would talk about it and Clive was like well what are you up to and she goes I don't know I think I'm done with the industry I think I, I think I you know I, I think I've had it with this and she said that Clive said to her well you may think you're done with the industry but the industry's not done with you let's let's see what we can put together let's see what we can make happen and yeah so he you know he just like said like i'm gonna take you by the hand i'm gonna i'm gonna do this and there was something about that gesture you know that that, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say it's an altruistic gesture because obviously he thought that they could be hit records there but but i think it's sort of like tapped into his 
his own his own story, his own history of like, uh, you know, I'm, I, yeah, we can do this again. We can, you know, we can make this happen. And um, and, and then he did it with Aretha. Uh, Aretha saw what he had done with Dion, with Dion. Aretha was sort of like adrift at, at Atlantic. Her, her previous album or two had, had not done well. But she was like, I can, I can see it. I, I, I get it. And those comeback stories are, 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 are I think, an important way to type in, to uh, tap into his creative psyche. The book does not, uh, other than a passing reference, address Millie Vanilli, who I know you had no professional <laughs> interaction with. Still, you must have had friends who were at Arista, and maybe this is on the public, rec- uh, you know, on the record. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. No, I who- was I was at Arista. Okay, so Millie Vanilli, who knew what and when did they know? <laughs> yeah, that, I was just interviewed for for a, <laughs> a, a documentary about them, and and you know, here's what here's what I have to say about that. Um, no, nobody saw Millie Vanilli play live. There was not a showcase. No one had met them. What was what what was presented to us was a finished record by Frank Farian that that purported to be by Robin Fab, who were Millie Vanilli. Yep. There was no reason of it for us anyone, I mean, not me in particular, to be skeptical of that. I mean, it's like, you know, no one was in the studio with him in Germany. Nobody, you know, ever saw whether they could sing live. We, you know, Clive, I assume, got this tape from one of our B, the BMG aff- affiliates in Europe that, oh, well, you know, this might be, this could be a hit, you know, who are the guys? Oh, here's a picture of them. There was no reason for us to know. I mean, if someone submits uh, uh, an album with with credits and with a photo, you have to take it on faith that what they're representing is is is, is, is the actual thing. And it's like, for example, if 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 expose, you know, you know, to name an '80s act. Yep. If Expose, if Expose's producer down in Florida had sent us uh, a master tape and said, like, these three girls are Expose, and here's a, and here's a photo of them. If he had used three d- different girls in the, you know, in the studio, how how would we know? I mean, it, not having been in the room when they recorded their vocals, not having been at, at a showcase to see whether they have any star appeal or have great live voices. You know, you're just going by the evidence that's presented to you. It's funny that you mentioned Expose. If I'm not mistaken, something to that effect did happen because Expose was sort of cast and then recast. Yeah. And I think yeah. at some point they had the new Expose girls yeah, yeah, promoting the saying, old record. Right. But what we, you know, but sure. had, had Louis Martin not been on the up and up about who was singing on the Expose records, we would have been none the wiser. I mean, if he would have just like picked three singers off you know off the streets of miami and said and then picked three other girls who were cuter you know to, to put on the cover there wouldn't have been any way for us to know and I, you know so the people that said like well clive must have known and arista must have known 
there was no way for us to know until we met them. And by that point, you know, the horse had left the barn. Well, also, I always thought with Melia Vanilli, the singing was not, with all due respect to whoever sang on that, the singing was not suspiciously amazing. Later on, you would have the, the music factories, the CNCs and the black yeah. boxes, where they would have a model lip syncing, and it's Martha freaking Wash singing, yeah, <laughs> and right, it's strange right. credulity. The Millie Vanilli vocals were mediocre. Hey, yeah, I mean they weren't they weren't Sam and Dave. For no. sake. <laughs> oh, right. You know they were. You know they were. You know they they were fine, but also they were. You know they were German, and so you know there was a certain assumption. It's like, oh, maybe they're not singing in their first language, and yeah. maybe it's a little less polished and a little more awkward than 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 it might be otherwise. But look, I mean, you know, certainly. At later points, you know, when Millie Finley came over here and everything, you know, and then everybody was like, oh, shit, you know, um, I think we may have something here that's not as as advertised, but certainly not at, 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 at any point in the first phase of, 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 of their success. Yeah, well, tragedy plus time equals comedy, and hopefully that's where everybody has. Yeah, and has we'll see. And we'll see how this film, how this documentary uh, pr presents the whole story from its different from its different angles. But yeah, that's that. You know, that's for them to figure out. Right. And speaking of uh, tragedy versus time, your publicist was kind enough to share with me a blurb that you most likely wrote for a Crocus record in the uh, in the early eighties. Um, I'm not sure what that would be. Crocus may be from Switzerland, but listener neutrality is out of the question. Oh, shit. Yeah, um, this is a record that yeah, will rock your socks I, off. I guess. I guess that's probably an advertising line of mine. Not my proudest, I have to say. Um, you know, that's why I wanted to get into A&R, so I didn't have to write things like that anymore. <laughs> uh, I, I bring it up. I bring it up affectionately. So I, I think to write like ads about air supply and Kenny G. You know, it's like I, I can't. I can't write. I I can't write something new about the fourth um, air supply or Kenny G album. All their albums sound the same to me. <laughs> well, you moved on to bigger and better things, A and R, and then this book, which I enjoyed reading, and I've enjoyed speaking to you about. No, me too. I enjoyed this a lot. The book is called Looking for the Magic, New York City, the 70s, and the Rise of Arista. It is available for pre-order now. As a matter of fact, there is a 15% pre-order discount if you order it now at trouserpressbooks.com. Thank you so much for your book and your time, Mitchell Cohen. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> 